Uh, I'll tell you, we have a big passage to look at this morning. And uh, you can say Matthew 7, 13 through 23 is the tatsu of the Sermon on the Mount. If, if you're asking, what is tatsu? It's because you do not have two roller coaster obsessed teenage sons in the home uh, like I do, Josh and Andrew, they're in the back. And uh, Tatsu is the longest, the tallest, and the fastest flying roller coaster in the United States. And by flying coaster, it means that you, you ride it horizontally like uh, Superman and with its, its pretzel loop, with its zero gravity roll, Tatsu just flips you around, I don't know what, like a hummingbird in a hurricane. I mean, it is insane. And the last time that we were at Magic Mountain as a family, uh, Josh and Andrew urged me to ride it. And I don't know whether they wanted the inheritance early, if that was what it was, but I was reluctant. Ultimately, I relented. But to say that I was disoriented by this ride would be a major, major understatement. But after a staggering off it and collecting myself, I was aware very sincerely of something like joy. I think because I had survived this crazy thing. Well, uh, a ride on Tatsu is a little bit like the experience that we get with today's passage. Matthew 7, 13 through 23. I'll tell you right now, at first it is disorienting. It's going to throw you around a little bit, but the result is joy. So we have something valuable, something good to experience this morning. If you're new, it's going to help to know that we are winding down a message series from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's most famous teaching. Uh, the series has been called The Flourishing Trees. And the reason for the name is that Psalm 92.12 says, the righteous flourish like the palm tree. And the big idea of this series is that Jesus is teaching everything that Jesus says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount and everywhere else in the Gospels is geared to our practical good, our flourishing, and not just in the future, not just way off in the future, but right here and right now. Now, having said that, in today's teaching, Jesus zeroes in on the future, our future flourishing. Let's get right to it, starting at verse 13. This is Jesus speaking to us this morning. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Pretty intense stuff. How do we flourish on the last day? And that's the question that jumps right off the page, isn't it? How can we flourish on the last day? The last day or the final day being judgment day. Look at verse 22 again. First phrase there, on that day, refers to the day of judgment. You know, some people think a lot about Pokemon or fantasy football. I think a lot about the day of judgment. I really do. And that's for a couple of reasons. First, scripture talks a lot about the day of judgment. And if we read scripture, we will discover a lot of references to the day of judgment. Every single New Testament writer talks about the day of judgment. Here's just one example. This is Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Listen to what he says. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. One example, judgment day for all of us. And there are countless other examples uh, in scripture. One example, Revelation 20, vivid picture depicts all human beings, every single person who ever lived standing before, John writes, a great white throne. Judgment Day is a major theme in scripture. It's not, not a minor note. It's a major theme in the preaching of Jesus. Jesus talked about it a lot. And in so talking about it, he's essentially saying, plan ahead. So I think about this day a lot. And the reason why I think about this day a lot is that scripture talks about it a lot, regularly comes up. But there's another reason too that I think about it a lot. And it's because just like you, I know, I am haunted by the violence and the disorder of the world. And I know you feel the same way. A lot of you in recent weeks have been talking to me about it, how sorrowful you feel about the state of the world. Therefore, it's actually really good that the day of judgment is the day, according to scripture, when the creator God sets everything to right. He fixes everything. Judgment day is not just about judicial rulings. Judgment day is about Repair, repair of everything that has been broken. Like Revelation 20, Psalm 96 is another Psalm all about the day of judgment. You should read it when you get home. Very interestingly though, the picture that's painted in Psalm 96 is not one of a courtroom like Revelation 20. The picture of judgment day depicted in Psalm 96 is of a choir. All of creation, everything, seas and sea creatures, fields, trees, forests, everything in the created world, according to Psalm 96, singing for joy at the prospect of the creator God coming back 
to judge. And that's because the day of judgment means something really good for creation. The day of judgment means the repair of creation. It's creation's deliverance, the repair of everything on the globe from pole to pole. The bottom line is this. The day of judgment generates joy in us. If we think about what it means, the creator God coming back to fix everything. But if we're honest, it also generates a little jitteriness in us. It makes us feel a little stirred up. Well, in this passage, Jesus tells us how to prepare for it. He talks about it. And here's what he says. First, he says, to flourish on the final day, he says, we make Jesus in his way our soul, soul focus. Let me say it again. We make Jesus in his way our soul, soul focus. And to flourish on the final day, we make Jesus who he is and what he said in particularity, the center, the focus, the main concern of our entire lives. Listen to what he says in verse 13. This is Jesus talking. He says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And maybe you're thinking right now, I'm not totally sure how I see how that point follows from those verses. And if that's you, totally understandable. But I think John 10 will make it click. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10, starting at verse seven. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. All who've come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Do you detect the echo? Both passages talk about doors. In our passage, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Then in John 10, Jesus says twice, I am the gate. And therefore, to enter by the narrow gate, it means to make Jesus, again, his unique person, the person he really is, and his particular message, everything that he said, our supreme and our exclusive spiritual focus. And you see, even more than lifestyle, which it includes, even more than lifestyle, the narrow gate here in verse 13, it refers to the one to whom we give exclusive spiritual loyalty. And very simply that means that we leave aside all other spiritualities, everything else, all other gods, all other spiritual practices. The gospel is such a big message and it involves so much that it doesn't leave room for anything else. And of course, if following Jesus really does lead to our flourishing, it really does lead to the very best lives that we can live, why in the world would we want to dilute him with various spiritual additives, some of which are absolutely dangerous, that are truly portals to very dark realms. Why would we want to do that? So first to flourish on the final day, we make Jesus and his way our sole, sole focus. It's him, his way, and nobody else. Second, to flourish on the final day, we do this. We stay clear of spiritual 
con artists. This is sort of a development of the first one, but listen to Jesus here. And again, he's talking to us today. It says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This is really interesting. The New Testament talks a lot about false prophets. Shows up in a lot of different places. And that's because false prophets were a problem in the early church, uh, and they had to deal with it. People uh, who were peddling new gospels, people who were peddling new ideas about the triune God, ones that didn't match with what Jesus said, didn't match with the words that the apostles went to their deaths to preserve. Uh, you know, people showed up tampering with the true identity of Jesus, the eternal son, the one who was never created, but the one who without ever ceasing to be God, took on human flesh and became a human being. It is not surprising that back then, false prophets would crop up, and it's not surprising that today they would crop up as well. And the reason is, spirituality can be big business. It really can. I ask Gwyneth Paltrow or Joel Osteen. It can be a really good way to collect likes and to sell books and to build a brand. In fact, this is interesting. The word translated ravenous, harpox. In verse 15, you know what it can also mean? Thieving, swindler, which is very interesting. But what kind of false prophets does Jesus have in mind here? All right. In light of the context, more than anything too uh, theologically technical, I think that what Jesus is talking about by false prophets is, is anyone who comes along claiming to represent him who widens the way who says that the Jesus path is actually not narrow, like Jesus himself says, that it really doesn't require imitating him, that it really doesn't require taking his teaching seriously, including everything that he's been saying in the Sermon on the Mount. All this remarkable teaching about money and forgiveness and breaking cycles with transforming initiatives and loving the enemy. I think the false prophet is somebody who says, no, 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 Jesus doesn't really mean those things. That's something else than something to be taken seriously. You know, when G Allison uh, hangs pictures uh, in our home, sometimes she will pull out this really little fancy device. It's this yellow thing. And she'll put it over the wall and it beeps when it passes a, a stud, right? And uh, sometimes I will, I will take it and I will, pass it over my sons and I'll say, listen, it's beeping, okay? Uh, it would certainly beep if I put it over Aiden Yates over there, okay? But in verses 16 through 20, Jesus gives us a false prophet finder, okay? And here's what he says. He says, we simply use it by looking at a teacher's life. We look at the life. Does that teacher, does that writer, does that influencer, does that pastor have the character of Jesus or something like it? Is he or is she joyful, peaceful, really kind, good, faithful, sticking to commitments, gentle, especially when he or she has power, self-controlled, and most of all, loving? 
On the other hand, does the te- is the teacher a bully? Does he abuse his power or her power? Or is she merciless? Does she extract maximum payment for every misstep? Jesus says we can know them by their fruits. We look at the life. We look at what emerges. And finally, and here's one we're going to go a little deeper into. To flourish on the final day, Jesus says, we do the will of the Father. And here, here we arrive at our Tatsu moment. You'll remember the roller coaster we started this sermon with. Prepare for a jolt, okay? But remember, it will be followed by joy with deeper understanding. Listen to the verses again. This is our Lord talking to us. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, here Jesus says that if we want to flourish on that final day, we are to, and this is right out of the passage. This is what he says. We are to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, that raises a big question, right? What's the will of the Father in heaven? A lot of ways to answer that question because scripture talks a lot about the will of God, but I think it would be good for us to start with the sermon itself. And let's remember that this passage is the climax of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. So the question is, what's the will of the Father specifically within the frame of the Sermon on the Mount? And here's what it is. It's to give and to re-give our whole hearts to King Jesus so that in deep friendship, he can mold them And so he can make us flowing fountains of his own goodness. That's the will of the Father. It's that we come to him in his son, in loyal, loving, transformative friendship, which is only possible because of what that son accomplished on the cross. And by the way, another word for that fundamental Whole life orientation in love towards Jesus the King. Another word for it is faith. It's faith. It's responding to Jesus with all that we are, with all that he is in reality. That's faith. And it stands in sharp contrast with works of the law, whereby we observe a few religious rules here and there, but we really keep our real selves entirely hidden away. In verse 22, in which Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. It makes it clear that that heart handover is precisely what these Lord, Lord people never did. Their deeds had no relational depth. It was external. It was for something else, their own influence or power or advantageous advantage or whatever it happened to be. Now, we said at the beginning that this message, this text will give us a jolt, but it also delivers joy. And here's why it delivers joy. It delivers joy because of what it reveals about the nature and the character of the one true God. And let this sink in. 
the one true God, the one who's existed from all eternity, never created, the one who brought all of creation into existence, this God who made the galaxies wants to know us. He wants to know us. And to know in biblical idiom is to have the closest possible personal relationship. That's what he wants. None of us is expendable to him. He wants relationship with each of us. Maybe you're thinking something like this. Okay, I understand that this passage is actually teaching us something stunning about God, something about his heart, something about God's character, that the true God wants to know me. He wants relationship with me, but still, verse 23 seems harsh. And I want to tell you, you know, I get that. I feel that too. On the other hand, if it does seem harsh, it might be because we're not actually viewing things from God's perspective. And let me explain this way. A few years ago, my twin brother sent me a story from the New Yorker called Leg by Stephen Polanski. And I have never been able to forget this story. The main character is this guy named Dave, and he's a Christian. And we learn right away that Dave's relationship with his teenage son, Randy, is deeply strained. Tons of deep conflict. And Randy, the son, is, is chronically furious with his father, angry with him for reasons that Dave, the dad, just cannot understand. Listen to some of the lines from the story. Randy hated the way Dave dressed. He hated his whole wardrobe. In particular, a blue-down jacket Dave had had for years and wore when he drove Randy to school on winter mornings. You garbage man, Randy would say to him. You look like a garbage man, you grunge monkey. Dave's beard, which he kept respectfully trimmed, made Randy angry. No kisses, Wolfman, Randy said, if Dave bent over his bed to kiss him goodnight. You werewolf, you're scaring me, Wolfman. Sometimes it was hard for Dave to remember that this abrasive, scowling thing always coming at him was his own son. And if you have a strained relationship with a child, this story will make you feel understood. Anyway, in the opening scene of the story, Dave's playing in a church softball game. And in a moment of whimsy, he decides to slide into third base. Problem is he's wearing shorts and he just tears up his leg from knee to ankle. And the next day, it's obvious that his leg is infected. But Dave will not go to the doctor. He kind of dabbles a little neosporin on it, kind of messes with it a little bit, but he won't go in. And his wife urges him to go in and get it checked. His doctor urges him to come in warning him that something really bad can happen if he doesn't get this thing treated. One of the best scenes in the whole story is when his pastor, Pastor Rick, comes over. And just with incredible love, sensitivity, patience, an incredible picture of pastoral skill and care, he urges Dave to go in. 
but Dave declines each time. Well, Dave's leg gets more and more infected until he ends up on the kitchen floor unable to get up. And as the reader, you are in anguish because you love this guy. He's a great character. He's a good, good man. And you're thinking to yourself, why doesn't he go to the doctor? Well, the penny drops as the plot proceeds. It's because he's noticing that his own suffering, the heat of this horrible infection is melting the heart of his son, the one that he loves so much. In the final scene of the story, the son Randy comes downstairs into the kitchen. It's the middle of the night. It's obvious that the son has been weeping. and He's totally broken. And he says to his dad uh, through tears, in this incredible scene, so moving. This is what it goes. It's just, this is how it goes. Do you see, Randy said, for blank's sake, dad, do you see? Are you nuts? What are you doing? I'm not sure, Dave said. I'm really not sure. Oh, man. Oh, man. What are you doing? Go to the doctor. It was by then too late. He would lose the leg. Not a bad idea, Dave said. I will. He loses his leg to win back his child. And as I thought about this story, which I think is a masterpiece, it dawned on me that the power of the story is that it is a microcosm of the story of the Bible. You see, in the Bible, the creator God is Dave. And we are all the angry for no reason Randys. And the story of the Bible is the story of all that God has suffered, all that God has given to win us back, except he didn't just give up his leg. He gave up his own second self, his eternal son, to torture and degradation and ultimately death on a cross. What's the point? Here's what. When we stop to consider reality, and we think about the whole biblical story and we consider all that God has done to win us back. His children, the ones he handmade, the ones he breathed life into. And if we won't give him what he wants and what he has a right to as our maker, which is our full selves and hearts so that he can know us and we can know him and so that he can love us and we can love him and so that he can grow us and we can glorify him throughout the world. If after all God has done, we still say no and remain closed off, maybe we deserve to be sent away. You see, though not a human, God the Father is a person and as a person, his full sufficiency as the eternal triune God notwithstanding, Scripture is clear, God can hurt. God can grieve. Look at Genesis 6.6. 6. Look at Ephesians 4.30. But here's the bottom line. If we're in Christ, we don't need to be rattled by this passage. If we're in Christ, living by faith, which means intimate relationship with God, friendship that leads to transformation and fruitfulness, we don't need to fret. We can be confident, completely confident that we will flourish on that final day. And as flourishing trees ourselves, we can sing with the trees of Psalm 96 that yes, the creator God is coming back to judge in his son Jesus. But having said that, 
as those who belong to him and are living by faith, let's keep giving God what he wants, shall we? That which he's paved the way for through the gospel. Let's keep drawing near him as a hillside family, as disciples. Let's let him know us better. Let's know him better. Let's receive his instruction. Let's allow him to change us from the inside out so that all of us over time glorifies God and so that we can flourish. And let's keep letting that love flow out into the whole world. You see, the fruitfulness that God desires is as broad as the brokenness of creation. For some of us, our fruitfulness will flow in serving at the Hands and Feet Christmas Festival. Talk to Tony Collins. For others of us, that love will flow by leading Bible studies at local jails, like we heard about last week of the Micah 6-8 project. For others, it will flow by mentoring mar uh, couples in marital tension. For others, it will flow by going to Broadway Plaza and sharing the gospel with shoppers and inviting them to Hillside for the Christmas musical. For others, it will flow by teaching a class in a public school in a distinctly Jesus way. Or by leading a Christian school that through a Bible-centered education develops lifelong followers of Jesus Christ, like Berean. Let's keep living the Sermon of the Mount together, Hillside. Never giving up, never fading out, never giving up, spurring each other on to keep giving our whole hearts to God whose heart beats for us. And let's do this too. Let's notice when people are fading away. Let's invite them back to this family into the friendship of King Jesus and the way of life in Jesus, which we're all still learning to live. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I know I'm in Christ. I know I'm going to flourish on the final day, but I am aware that I've been stingy with him. I've been stingy. I'm not giving him much time and much attention. I'm racing around. I'm denying him my loving attention. You know, as an expression of his grace, because he's always ahead of us, he has prepared a meal for us this morning. And in this meal, we will have the opportunity to draw near him and give him what he wants, our love, our loyalty, our attention, our affection.